It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery, May 1st, 2007, was when I literally was scraped up off the, the floor, found dead, and decided it was time to fight for my life. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. Go there and find out all the information you need to know. Well, not all the information, but a lot of information. I, I, it might be all the information. Yeah, it's going to help yeah, you talk to It's really helpful. Talk to yourself, talk to your doctor, talk to loved ones, and kind of know what's out there when it comes to opioids. Right. And uh, I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen you for a week. I know. You're off uh, gallivanting around the uh, the golf courses with famous uh, celebrities. Well, no. Tony Romo played after me. Yeah. Uh, I never got to meet him. Never got to see him. But uh, well, you were there. Yeah, I was there on the same course and, as Tony Romo. a lot Romo. of well-known Utahns were there. Yeah. And, and it was a lot of fun. And that's the great thing about my job right now is that uh, it's a lot of golf. And it's it was the it was the Utah Open uh-huh. Pro Am yeah that you were playing in so so it's basically four amateurs and one professional and uh, my guy's name was Andrew Witt uh, nice guy played professional baseball for the Astros uh, picked up golf three years ago and is already pro jealous much yes three years ago and three he's years ago pro? he's already a pro. Wow. And so it, it, it's pretty cool, you know, and we've often talked about uh, golf and my relationship with golf and alcohol. And I'll tell you right now, my biggest test in sobriety was going back to the golf course because that's right. what I turned into a bar. And it was two beers before, seven or eight during, two beers after. And it just <laughs> a lot of beer. Man. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, and then you got to throw in birdie juice. Do you know what a birdie juice is? I don't. If you get a birdie, then you got to take a shot. OK. And so. Um, I would never take a shot then, because. But if anybody in the group gets a birdie, <laughs> oh, okay, you got to take birdie oh, juice. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. You know what I mean? And so okay. for me, it was it was that was the the toughest test for me. And uh, there's this thing coming up, and we're going to talk about our guest with it a little later. It's called Good Time Golf, and uh, this is, they kind of celebrate recovery and the world of golf. And excellent, uh, we'll find out more about that. But what have you been up to lately? Well, other than hosting the show by myself, well, I wasn't by myself. Josh, Josh, and I handled. I know. It last I read some time. of the, the comments on Facebook. So it's good to hear Josh. Yeah, people like the Josh. Yeah, Josh yeah. is great. Um, this week, I, I uh, went to a uh, a punk rock show by myself. As yeah, the, yeah. What so, punk rock show? So I've gone to two two concerts by myself in my life, and I've decided I really enjoy it. The first one was a few years ago. Black Flag was uh-huh. in town. Yeah, and this was. The headliner, it was at the complex. But when you think about it, that there's nothing more punk than going to a punk rock show by yourself. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah. Um, but I went to see The Descendants. Oh. They opened for Rise Against. Uh-huh. I, and I've wanted to probably see the, I've wanted to see that band since I was maybe 13. Uh huh. And it was fantastic. Had so much fun. But the reason I bring it up is 
I ended up not being alone for a lot of the time I was there because I was recognized by some of our listeners. Get out. No, seriously. I, I, had, a, I had a couple people come up to me. Uh, to, they were in a group, and they said, hey, are you Dr. Matt from Project Recovery? And I was surprised, and I was glad I was un, you know, demonstrating good behavior. Yeah. And, they, and I said, well, yeah, actually I am. And they said, we're, we're listeners. It was... Uh, his name was Andrew. I kept calling him Andy, which I don't think he appreciated. Probably not. No, but I, he felt like an Andy to me. Monica and I think their other friend might have been Sarah. But the three of them, uh, the two, the first two were, were listeners of the show. And uh, we hung out and talked a little bit and talked music and talked recovery. And they, uh, two of those two were in recovery. I think they were dating, but the, like wouldn't didn't want to advertise it but well, you that's tell the there's a little step. vibe you know there's 12 steps the 13th is is dating somebody dating <laughs> yeah okay well andy and uh and monica i think had that had that going on but it was fun anyway i just want to let you know that uh you know there, there have been several times at the rsl stadium and and a few other times when people come up and they usually say it's the hair they're like we recognize your hair yeah <laughs> you know and that's what's so cool about this project project recovery is how many people it actually touches and helps and i'm so grateful that we're allowed to do this every week week yeah. in and week out and share people's stories because when we start the podcast we always say it's a project uh, podcast about addiction but more importantly it's about recovery right and you are just showcasing that's what it is about it's recovery it's out there living your life and doing what you want to do right and, and, so and, these listeners they were out at the show mm-hmm. every there not everyone but many many people were drinking at the show you know they were not and i asked them i said you know what's it like because they were they were kind of they looked like people that have gone to a lot of punk rock shows, right? Sure. And and so we talked about that. And I don't look like somebody who's, but I have been to a lot. So we talked about a lot of concerts we'd all been to. And I said, what's it like going sober to the con? And they said, so much better. You know, it, that's it, it's crazy because I used to go to all the concerts when I worked back in radio. And I don't remember any of them. We've had this conversation where you've met bands where I'm like, oh, I can't believe you got to hang out with them. And then when I start asking questions, you're like, well, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. Yeah, I got kicked right? out of Midnight Oil's dressing room for drinking all their beer. <laughs> you know, the, how can we sleep when the beds are burning? They were like, get out of here. Out you are an here. idiot. Quit yeah. drinking all our Heineken. And I drank those. I remember uh, the guy from Counting Crows, Durst, you know, yeah. I mean, he, he was mad at me because I called him a fraggle. And you know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, this is not good. And I remember doing so, so yeah. many cool things. And, and now... My dad once told me, he goes, why do you go to the concerts if you're just going to get so hammered? Aren't you going there to support them because you like their music? And enjoy the music, right? Yeah. And so now I, I've been to a couple of concerts. I went and saw Luke Combs with uh, Lovely Leslie, and, and that was amazing. And walking around yeah. and doing that. And that's what I really love about recovery for me is that I'm able to do the things that I loved. Yeah. And sometimes that's the biggest test because you want to ask yourself, do you really love them or did you love the chaos that went into it well i think i think this is a good example i've heard it said before alcohol is a lie it, it's a right? lie. It, it, it you know the commercials and and what's advertised and what you think growing up is it's going to make things more fun but it ends up being a lie because you know so many people probably left and it was a fantastic show for for a bunch of old guys still cranking out the 80s punk rock and 90s, they sounded amazing. They put on a great show. Rise Against, I left a little early because I'm not really into them, but they were great. They sounded really good. Um, and and I'm glad I'll always be able to remember that, like being able to be there. And, and the, the listeners that I hung out with for a few minutes, they just said, this is the, this is the best time 
of their lives going to shows because most of their life they don't remember all these concerts they went to. You turn on the TV, you're watching football, and here comes a, a beer commercial, and it's a bunch of 20-something hot people with washboard abs just bouncing the ball Because that's what you look beach. like if you drink a lot of beer, <laughs> you right? Know, and, 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 and that's what you're seeing. You go, man, that looks good. Right. But what if the commercial was... A 40-something divorced dad sitting on the back deck, smoking a cigar, pounding his sorrows in beer, because that's what it was for me. Yay, good times. Yeah, <laughs> You know what I mean? And and, yep. and and that was my reality. But that's the reality. I mean, that's like, you know, uh, what's the old joke? I'd like to see a McDonald's commercial 10 minutes after someone ate McDonald's. You know? Yeah. Like, you don't feel good. No. <laughs> and it's the same thing with, with beer. And the thing is, is I... And some, because my world still revolves around alcohol. Like I DJ parties where alcohol is prevalent. I DJ clubs where you know alcohol is the weddings, main reason for yeah. people to go to weddings and stuff like that. And people go, "Aren't you against alcohol?" And I go, mm, "That's a tough one for me because I know people who can drink like a gentleman and keep their life together and manage it. So I'm not against alcohol. I'm against alcohol for me. Alcohol and me do not go together. I know I play the tape for 24 hours. I know where this is going. It's still one of my favorite memes and it's got Robert Downey Jr. And he's like, sure, I could have a drink today, but I got plans for Christmas. And if I take that drink today, I don't know if, where don't I'm going to be because yeah. I don't know when to stop. And we're going to bring our guest in here in just a second. His name is Danny Deaton. And he told me about this time he relapsed. I hope I'm not sharing part of his story, but it, how simple it was uh, and how all of a sudden just three innocent drinks just turned his life around. And upside down. Upside down. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Around is usually associated with positivity. Is it? I don't know. I think so. I probably was overly critical. Sorry, man. No, it's all right. I'm, no, I'm good, good with that. But we want you guys to st- stick around today. We've got a wonderful show. It's Project Recovery. It's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. More information coming up with Danny Deaton in just a few seconds. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson. And unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our uh, guest today is Danny Deaton. We love the alliteration, the double D. Oh, love it. Danny Danny Deaton. Deaton. You know, every time you say that name, it reminds me of the guy Danny in uh, Caddyshack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice, yeah. Nice. I'll take but he it. was Noonan, right? Danny Noonan. Yeah. Danny Ooh, Noonan. Good memory. Danny yeah. Noonan. So uh, you're here with uh, Good Time Golf, and we teased a little bit about that in the first segment. So real quick, what is Good Time Golf? Good Time Golf is an incredible organization that uses the game of golf, a game that a lot of men love and women, and they use it to help people in recovery. So when they started, it was kind of an, an aftercare group. Mm-hmm. 
And really what it is, it's just an added layer. Anyone in recovery needs multiple layers of support. Well, what we found is you need a community. You do. And this gives you a community and of people like-minded. A legitimate community. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool because the dynamic of Good Time Golf is there are some very successful business owners who help support it by donating to it. And then they also come and mentor even though they're not in recovery themselves, you know, and then at least half of them are people who either work at treatment centers, own treatment centers, or who are in recovery. So you get this really cool blend of business professionals who love golf Mm -hmm. and they're going to use the opportunity to play another day of golf, but also support a young man who's early in his recovery. I be six months clean, but loves the game of golf. And what's beautiful is he gets to spend four hours with guys that he typically wouldn't. Right. And have experiences getting to know them and maybe building a relationship where they can sort help of them. like um, breaking into kind of a, le- a layer of society that yeah. a lot of us like I, you know, where would I go if I wanted to golf with Amen. a bunch of top business people here in the state? I don't know. I'd have to ask Casey. Right. And no, but the, but the great thing is, is that he's right. You get four hours with somebody yeah. and you can really find out a lot about a person, how they react under stress, how what kind of person they are uh, by that four hours of golf. And it, it, it's very, very, intuitive. you know, we're seeing this a lot so recently we had we had um the bikers colin easter Mm -hmm. on the show talking about uh biking and using using biking as an opportunity obviously we have several places like fit to recovery eastman fitness and now i love this idea of of golf i mean and especially what you're describing sounds a, a little bit different than some of the others where you have this nice blend of different folks all together for the for the golf if people want more information about good time golf where do they go you can go to the social media page they have a facebook and instagram account they also have a website but most traffic goes through you know one of their social media pages and it's just good time golf utah it's it comes up pretty good if you look for it all right we're gonna find out more about that and what danny's doing now in recovery a little bit later but let's hear your story because that's why we're here we want to find out what got you into the recovery world and so where does the story of danny deaton begin yeah i'm i'm a utah native local boy and uh i've learned over the last several years what i thought was this unique story a story of such tragedy but also triumph has become a very common story yeah at first when you get into an addiction or you find out that you're an addict you feel like you're so alone you're broken everybody else seems to be able to do it but why am i just broken yeah and and what i really hope today is to kind of share something that might relate to other people either someone that they love who's going through it or they themselves who, who are going through it and and really kind of shed light on some of the things that helped me most to find the life that i have today so how old are you right now? So I'm 44 years old. My family and I live in Alpine, Utah. Um, May 1st, 2007 was when I literally was scraped up off the the floor, found dead, and decided it was time to fight for my life. And so it's been a little over 14 years. But, you know, as a younger boy, I grew up in the Sandy Draper area, attended Alta High School. Mm-hmm. Um, so a local boy here. I... I really had a childhood that I loved. I loved being with people. I played a lot of sports. I was active in a lot of things. I I really enjoyed. I mean, I, several concerts we got to attend here in this great state growing up. And I I loved 
everything about life. Which is sometimes not what we hear from our guests who sit down in that. Uh, there's a lot of trauma that will get people into their addiction. Uh, a lot of trauma is what people are running from or hiding from and Correct. using drugs as a way to numb themselves. Yep. Like I look back on my childhood and much like you, I had a great childhood. I enjoyed school. I was somewhat popular. I, you know what I mean? Like I look back and I go, no, childhood was really good for me. Yep. I mean, I, my parents got divorced, but that, that didn't seem to affect me as bad as I thought yep. and everything. But you said you had a good childhood. I did. And so there was a time later on my life, not to jump around in the story, but that was a very difficult thing to understand because when I was fighting for my life at one point, they always want to revisit what trauma you experienced. And it was hard. And I've come to know hundreds of young men and women who face that same challenge because maybe their trauma isn't as polarizing or severe as someone else. Mm -hmm. However, all of our trauma is just based upon what we know. So that's a great point. And I talk to people, people bring this up to me in therapy sessions quite a bit where they'll come in and uh, they'll, they'll sort of unload, have that catharsis, and then they'll catch themselves and they'll say, but I shouldn't complain because my life's, you know, it's really good compared to other people. Da, da, da. And I usually stop them and I say, you know, that there's a healthy balance there. On the one hand, you know, being, you know, recognizing your privilege and recognizing the blessings you've had in your life and all those things is good, right? I mean, that's a really healthy thing. Gratitude for your experiences. On the other hand, if you don't recognize that your perception of your trials and traumas is is yours and and it's 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 relevant and should never be compared to someone else's because otherwise you can go down this ludicrous sort of path of logic where well if we if we lined everybody up then there'd only be one person on planet earth at a time that could complain and when they kick it somebody takes their spot and if you grew up in a nice town like this chances are you'll never get there so I think it's very important for the listeners and for anybody who's going through this to say, yeah, I'm grateful for my traumas and my, my, but that doesn't minimize. Don't ever minimize it because it can sit there and fester inside if you don't take care of it. You know, when I was in recovery, uh, in, in the process groups, my therapist goes, how come you don't talk? And I go, because I don't need it as bad as they do. And he, my therapist goes, you know you're in rehab, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, but I don't feel like I need it. I mean, yeah. I've got a house to go home to. Well, some people have these stories, that, that, and we've heard them here on the show, and, yeah. and, and you know that they're just like, wow, I can't believe a person could go through all that. So it's easy to say, well, maybe I should sit back and let them take the time, but the reality is your experience is your experience, and That's your it. perception of your, ex your experience is valid, mm -hmm. and it needs attention because nobody makes it – to age 44 or 49 without having some real serious trials and and often traumas. Correct. Danny, Correct. do you remember the first time you tried alcohol or drugs? Yeah, I do vividly. I think young, middle school. I was at a party and it was disgusting. It was just a regular old Budweiser. Um, but, you know, in the younger days in high school, I, you know, I associated with some friends and we loved, we just loved having fun, man. Whether it was out camping or, you know, riding four-wheelers, dirt bikes down at the dunes. We were just always active. But then there came this time in our life where partying came into the picture. Uh -huh. right? People started dabbling or experimenting with different drugs and alcohol. Back then, it was pretty lighthearted is what I describe it as, right? Mm -hmm. It was something that we did once in a while. And even as a young boy, you'd do it and you kind of feel bad. And, you know, then you'd come home and get your stuff together and you get back in school and do all the things you're supposed to, and then continue to, you know, have fun with this from time to time. I did that for a long time. And if there's one thing about addiction, I know to be a fact with any person is it's progressive. 
right? It's yeah. progressive. But in the beginning, it's different. In the beginning, it's interesting, right? In the beginning, it's not addiction. No, no, for no. some people, it's it's a it's a relief from something they don't like, or it could just be for fun. It could be a distraction. It could feel a void that you may not even be conscious that you have, or discomfort inside that you're not even able to articulate. So for me, it was that, and it got a little crazy for a while. After high school, I went to Alta High School. I actually packed up with some buddies. We moved to Maui, Hawaii. We worked at a jet ski platform my best friend and uncle owned, and I thought I found my life. I thought that was going to be the rest of my life that I was going to That's live. pretty sweet when yeah. you're 18, yeah. right? So we were surfing. We worked three days a week. We made lots of money because people would tip, and we were living this life. We were meeting girls from all over the world, and I remember I was down in Hana, if you're familiar with Maui, laying on Black Sand Beach one night. And I had this kind of a spiritual awakening is what people call it. But after so long of living that lifestyle, I, I remember laying on the beach on this boogie board, staring at the moon and we may or may not have partaked in some mushrooms at the time. And as a gentleman's playing a ukulele, I had this feeling where I felt empty and I felt hollow. And I remembered I could almost feel the moon going through me. And so I just, I knew at that moment that there was something missing. So I came back home and uh, put my life together, cleaned my act up, and I actually got myself prepared and I went and served an LDS mission, a humanitarian mission for our church, which some people may or may not be aware of. Um, But it's a service mission where you go somewhere in the world and help people. It was an incredible experience. I did that. And just to wrap things up in this little process is I came home, went to the University of Utah, graduated. I had gotten married, um, got out of college and started a business. And after a few years of, I guess, minding my P's and Q's and getting my life in order and figuring out, okay, here, I'm going to move forward. Checking all the boxes. Checking all the boxes. I had a day where a friend introduced me to something. I didn't know what it was at first. It was the size of a Smarty, and he broke that Smarty into four little pieces. Meanwhile, I had had some lingering issues, right? Some, I had some physical issues, some pains from a few different accidents, and I won't bore you with the details of that. So anytime you could have relief from that discomfort, it was great. Um, I had taken pain pills for different things at times, but it just was the way the doctor prescribed it. And when this friend introduced me to something, he's like, oh, this is way better than this. I remember this feeling this polarizing moment where I'm like, Oh, I don't know. This doesn't seem right. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details as to why, but it happened. And when I say he took that smarty and he broke it into four pieces, if you break a smarty into four pieces, you can imagine how small it is. Small it is. Right. So he actually broke it up and he's like, you know what? It's just easier to just snort it than to take it. And I did. And it was a very tiny amount, almost enough that if you move too quick, it would blow away and you wouldn't know where it was. I was outside the car for seconds later vomiting. And as soon as the vomiting stopped, this euphoria it happened. And when I say euphoria, it wasn't like some people see in these movies where you're seeing things and it's this crazy experience. I just, for the first time in my life felt exactly how I would like to feel if I was in charge of myself, if I was God. So what was it? It was an Oxycontin. And just a, a fourth of Oxycontin uh, up your nose, puking, and then euphoria. And I had that experience. And and I know there are others like that. 
I have two brothers and one of my best friends who, if you gave them a pain pill, within 10 minutes, they're just freaking out, trying to drink as much water as they can and get it out because they don't like the way it feels, right? For me, it was the feeling I had been searching for my, my whole life. Your body feels good. Your pains go away. Anything you're struggling with mentally, emotionally, physically that you, you may not even be aware of instantly is all in a line and everything's perfect. So that's where it started. From that point, flash forward to f- several years, I was able to graduate from college, do all the things I supposed to do, my duties in my community duties, duties in church, duties with my family, things I was supposed to do. I was a functioning addict because very quickly I developed an addiction to opioids. This is back when the true opioid epidemic started. When opioids like oxycodone and oxycotton were being basically just infused through the country in every state. Super easy to get a prescription. For any reason. Get an entire bottle, way more than a person would ever need. That for, exactly. Yeah. So looking back now, I can see how pathetic and how apparent the problem was. But during it, it's always justifiable, right? I go to a doctor. Did I, you think that you were an addict? Or no, you- heavens no. Nope. I just liked it. And I knew I needed it. And I was better with it. Well, so, so many people, and it sounds like you would agree, if if this becomes your DOC, if this is, if your, if your biochemistry clicks with, with this particular drug, people will often say, I like that you use the word, everything was in order. I've had people say, it feels like everything in my life is in order. I'm at complete peace. I feel love and contentment and confidence, like everything's going to work out. And I mean, that's a pretty enticing, if you could sell that to somebody, right? You'd be like, wow, I'd like to feel like that because most of us are full of stressors and anxieties and pressures every day and, uh, you know, throw some back pain on top of it. And that's a tough day. So it's very understandable when a person comes across that experience that the first thing your brain says, because our brains are designed to keep us safe. Yep. And part of that safety is determining what's healthy and unhealthy. And this is where your brain gets tricked a little bit because your brain has that experience and it's programmed to want it again. Yep. Right. And if it, if it had only made you throw up and made you sick and that's where it stopped, then it would go into the other category and your brain would say, I never am going to do that again. And the next time you saw some, you might even feel queasy. So your brain is going to categorize your experience as one or the other safe or unsafe. And unfortunately it feels really great that first few times you do that. Yeah. Earlier you referred to alcohol as the, the great lie. Is that what it was? Yeah. Great, well, any substance for any person when it's the right fit, it is the great lie because in the beginning it's good. It makes you feel like you've wanted to. It actually gives you what you were missing and you feel like a better person. So mm-hmm. I did, I spent several years as a functioning addict. Now I can recognize, but back then it was by no, there was no way I was an addict. Yeah. I was just taking something that I needed and over time, like I said earlier, every addiction I have ever come to know or hear about is progressive. So your tolerance goes up and the need to feel that same way goes up. So you're taking more and more and other things. Well, I'm sure people listening have heard the story a million times, but my situation ended up being just like those stories you hear a million times. It progressed and simultaneously my life started to deteriorate. Started to unravel. Yeah. I now own and operate a company called 
living proof recovery services. The mantra to my business, to my life, to the way I live as a father and a husband is our secrets keep us sick. Within addiction, doesn't matter what that is for you. Simultaneously, you become a master manipulator. Mm -hmm. Your lies end up keeping you sick more than the alcohol or the Oxycontin or whatever it is. You have to lie about almost every single move you make. And then it becomes this web where you're lying about these lies and you have to remember who you said what to. All to protect. It's like in Lord of the Rings. Remember Smeagol? Yeah. Sitting up in my precious. He's just (laughs) protecting that pressure. That's how you become inside. And you're lying and you're hiding. And that's why addiction eventually progresses to a point where people's lives are in shambles. Relationships are ruined. Families start being torn apart. It's because of the secrets and what that substance does that forces them to live that lifestyle. So your life started to unravel. We're going to find out what that looks like in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, more importantly about recovery. Our guest today is Danny Deaton. Uh, He's talking about how after how many years of kind of active addiction did you start to notice that your life began to unravel? It was a few years. I'd say probably five, four or five years. Where did you start to see the cracks first? Well, the cracks started to happen when what I needed became more and more and trying to obtain it started causing me to do things that I wasn't comfortable doing in the beginning, right? You know, we hear that so often here on the podcast that addiction will make you do things that you normally wouldn't do. Correct. But the power is so strong that you start to jump over those lines, crawl over those lines to get what you need. It does. And it is progressive. And it gets to the point where you're now doing things that are reckless, things that can cause harm, things that could potentially get you in trouble with the law and things like that. So I started lying and manipulating to get what I needed. And I was becoming more dependent on this. And now this is where it also segues to other things where in order to sleep or to function outside of taking the opioids, you start messing with barbiturates and sleeping medication and alcohol. Because if you don't have the pills, there's other things you can take to help until you do. Alcohol became one of them. So it became progressive and quickly things people started to notice. Enough so that at the time, um, my ex-in-laws and my family and, and, and my ex-spouse had confronted me and said it was time to get some help, All right? It got to that point. And I was just like, oh man, I'm still in my mind in denial, just like any other crazy person. And I get to say that because I was crazy. Well, I went and did what they wanted me to do. I put on this face, put on this show, made it through 28 days, just like the Hollywood stay at rehab. And when I left, there was a man named Gary Fisher. Gary Fisher? Yeah, where I went. And- I can vividly remember I was leaving and here I was tooting my own horn, felt like, yeah, I'm going to go back. I got this life back home. I was walking out the hallway and he pinned me up against the wall and he looks at me and he says, guess what? What? And I'm sorry to say, but we're probably going to see you back here. And to be completely honest with you, that's if you're lucky because you're not going to make it. Wow. I was like, wow. F you. You don't know me. (laughs) Almost fueled me more. I was like, I'll show you. So I went home, did what everybody else does, thought I was fixed. Finally, this stuff was out of my life. Well, he was right. And 
almost a year to the date later, I was wheeled back in there, 90 pounds. Every vein in my body turned black in a wheelchair, two broken legs after I had been found dead in the basement of this home. Okay, before we get to that, I teased a little bit in the beginning of this podcast about how easy it was to relapse. Yeah. Do you mind sharing that story? No. I was out with a friend doing something I love, which was golfing. And somehow in my mind, I justified it. I was back grinding, doing everything I supposed to, living this life, doing everything right, that I was having, I think now they're called seltzers, mm-hmm. but I had two. He had some, and I had two on a golf course. And all it took several months later was those two to give me just enough of that little thing I needed to feel whatever was inside that I couldn't even understand at that point. I felt great. I liked the way I felt. And it was instantly about 48 hours later that that progressed right back to where I was. And this is where we find you on the ground. Well, so from the seltzers, two days. Yeah, two days. And then you're using opiates again? Yep. And a lot of it I look back now as I think was the shame and guilt I felt from like, oh my gosh, I just, I just screwed up. Yeah. I just screwed up. And I didn't tell anyone. It was kind of quiet about it. And then the next day I remembered, well, I know how to make that feeling go away. So I did it one more time just to kind of get through that day because I'm like, oh, I got to figure out what I'm going to do and yada, yada. Well, fast, fast forward a little bit. The addiction came right back and it came back with a vengeance. My marriage at that point ended. Everything I had started to fall apart. And that was a turning point, right? I think in everyone's addiction, there's this progression. And so I, I work with people all the time and I say, every person in addiction has a 10 chapter book, right? Their addiction is a 10 chapter book. Quite frankly, the first eight chapters are kind of boring. You're building the plot, explaining characters, kind of telling a story and getting people excited a little bit, you know, and then the ninth chapter, things start to get a little, little heated, And in the 10th chapter is where you sum up someone's story. Whether they die from this or they're one of the fortunate few who have a chance to get help. Because in that 10th chapter for every person in addiction, things get bad quick. And I know any person, including you, can say that right, you know, right towards the end is when things got ugly. Ooh, yeah. Scary ugly. The things that are scary, the things that are destructive. So I went... From being a return missionary, Eagle Scout, college graduate, to being in a jumpsuit behind bars as a heroin addict, facing multiple felony charges. That's a pretty polarizing story change, right? And I was fortunate. I could go on and on and tell you because it's irrelevant. You can't sleep in a storage unit, by the way. No, you can't. can't. I actually got arrested when they opened my storage unit and found me in there and then took all my stuff. There were so many things towards the end of my addiction that were just so horrendous. And they're also the things that families see their loved one going through and wonder why. How can you not see this? Why won't you go get help? They are stuck. Something is controlling them. That's why these things are happening. It's a mess. So it always has to come to a halt. What is it that gets it to come to an abrupt halt? You know, often it's a judge, it's a jury or something. For me, I was with a friend. Um, We were desperate. We were broke. We were basically homeless living out of my car. And we decided to go and um, call the drug dealers. And when we found him, my buddy who was bigger than I was just going to take it from him. Just manhandle him. Manhandle him. 
crash into him, do whatever. I mean, we were desperate. So I was laying back in the passenger seat of my car where he was driving, withdrawing, and I was shaking and shivering. If anyone's ever experienced withdrawals, you know how bad that is. So I had my feet up on the dashboard with the seat reclined back, just shaking. I had a blanket on me. It's the middle of summer. And he's chasing these guys around in this neighborhood, hits a parked car going about 40 miles an hour, and it threw me through the windshield. I landed about 10 feet in front of my own car because my feet were on the dash and it had pushed the thing out, broke my legs, threw me on. He scooped me up. How we made it home, I don't know. We crashed a car. We had drugs and paraphernalia all over in our car. We drove home without a windshield. Nothing ever happened. And he laid me in in the basement of this home where he was staying. Well, simultaneously that night, both my father and my brother, who I hadn't spoken to for some time, had a dream. Both of them dreamed that they were speaking at my funeral. Now, they were living in different homes at the time. And when one of them communicated this to the other, they knew there was a problem. So they began searching for me the very next day, searched all day long, couldn't find me. And towards the end of the day, they were about to quit and stopped at this gas station. And my brother spotted that friend, that friend that had put me in that basement. My brother chased him down. He's like, you better tell me where Danny is. I know you know where Danny is. We're not mad. My dad came and talked to him and said, we just need to know. And so he told him. And I still, almost 15 years later, can vividly remember laying on the basement floor, two broken legs. All my veins were black. I weighed less than 100 pounds. And I had been in this basement for long enough that without water, you shouldn't be alive anymore. And there were moments where I could feel a separation from this physical body to whatever you want to call it that were separating themselves. And I remember laying there and I couldn't even lift my head up off the floor. And this light comes across the the, the floor as this door opened. And I looked up and I, I just kind of looking up and I it's squinting my eyes cause it's so bright. And I see my dad and my brother. And it was, it was a crazy moment cause my dad leaned over me with the, with just the, the most peaceful voice <laughs> And obviously I'd put him through hell. So he was used to responding in not the best way, but he leaned over and he said, Hey, I've told God that if he needs you more than we do, he can have you. If you want help, we're here, but you have to decide right now. So in that state, anyone in their right mind would be like, Oh my gosh, it's a miracle. Hallelujah. Get up. I turned my head over and told him to get the out of there. So he starts walking away and my brother comes back and starts begging, please. He's just crying, please. I told him to leave too. And so as they were leaving, I remember as the door shut right before the the light went completely away from the door, I just mustered up enough to just yell, help. And my brother came back and literally like a child, he scooped me up off the ground, carried me into my dad's car. They drove me up so that my mom could give me a kiss on the forehead. She hadn't seen me for a while, and that's where the journey began. And that's and, when they wheeled you back into the rehab. <laughs> so I went to uni, University of Utah. Been um, there. Yeah. Spent 17 days in there. Um, I was I was one of the first people to do a, a taper of Suboxone that's now a very popular thing. But back then, they were still trying to figure out how to help people. They're a lot more effective today. But I, I, I spent a miserable two and two and a half weeks there in some serious pain and discomfort. And from there I was willed to Cirque Lodge, 
where I began to rebuild my life and it was a different story. So the next time I saw Gary Fisher, it was a different situation and he just came up and hugged me and he's like, I'm glad you're lucky enough to make it back. And that was the start. It's, it's been over 14 years later and I I've learned a lot and I've learned that that story is just far too common. You know, there's differences, there's variations from family to family and person to person. But the destructive nature of my addiction, what it did to everyone around me, what it did to myself was just as bad as it is for any family. And there are just far too many that are going through it, right? Yeah. It's it's like having diarrhea. If you have diarrhea, you don't want to tell people you have diarrhea. You just deal with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the most uncomfortable <laughs> right. thing. Families are all learning to live with diarrhea in our community. It's not just here. It's everywhere. But even in this great state we live, it is a serious problem. It is the biggest problem. Every single home has someone who is is drowning, whose life is becoming unmanageable, and the whole family is becoming sick. And, so, and, well, and we say that on the podcast all the time. Uh, addiction is a family disease. It, I mean, a hundred percent is that, you know, I remember when I was inactive in my addiction and we've said this on the podcast before where I would tell my ex-wife or I would tell my mom or I'd tell my dad or my coworkers, what do you care? Why? What, what does it matter to you? I'm doing what I want with my body. It's my choice. <laughs> and I realize now how selfish that statement yeah. is because my kids were affected. My ex-wife was affected. My ex-in-laws were affected. My family was – and they were all affected because of my disease. Yeah. Well, here, here's something that's interesting to think about. And if maybe the doctor can prove me wrong. But I've yet to have anyone tell me of a fatal illness like addiction. There is no other fatal illness that I found on the planet where people or families more often argue, disagree, or ignore signs than addiction. Because if it was cancer or anything else, that family's united. They're all set aside in personal agendas. They're all going to face the problem. And here's the kicker too. It's the only fatal illness where the person who's sick fights just like you did to stay sick. I think we had Brandon Novak. He was one of the first guests we ever had on this. He goes, you get diagnosed with cancer, you go to a doctor. You get a broken bone, you'll get a doctor. Somebody tells you're an alcoholic, you wait a minute, whoa. <laughs> let me have a few beers and talk about this. <laughs> like, let me just show you my arsenal of manipulation because yeah. I can play everyone in this room like a fiddle. No, I think I think you, you summarized it really well, Danny. That's exactly right. And in fact, uh, it is really the only disease, the only fatal disorder or disease that we know of that people struggle within themselves to even want or accept treatment and it it can divide and destroy families because of prejudice preconceived ideas and notions uh moralizing why the person has the problem those sorts of things um it, it the behavioral aspects of it mislead the the average person to to misconstrue what it's about and and we still have so many way too many people in in our community and all communities that think you can just stop yep they just say well it's a it's a behavior just it's a choice it's a choice why don't you just stop and um what i love and really appreciate about you and all of our other guests is it's through these you know personal story after personal story after personal story where i hope that people will start to realize wait a second like you said these are all the same story these are all good people. Yep. Nobody wants to be sick like this. Nobody wants to be suffering and in pain. Nobody's having fun. 
This is not a behavior we would choose. And we can't stop it. We need treatment. We need help. And that's why the people who recover and stay recovered, it's because that community that was hurt, the whole community gets healed together. The whole family, the friends, the the people that you work with, everybody comes together and and it's a it's a healing experience for the group. We have to stop thinking of this is all about the person who is drinking the alcohol or taking the drugs. It's it's a it's a system. Yeah. And what my family learned from this was absolutely the most beautiful thing we've gone through. I mean, out of something so tragic, because you can imagine, <laughs> I mean, my poor parents, I, I just shared the story quickly to, you know, for sake of people's time, but I was a very difficult part of their life. And when this thing progressed to the point it did, it was something that my parents and any other parent, they just want to go away. They're desperate to have it fixed, anything but it's also destroying that family structure. Mom and dad are now handling things differently. Siblings are building resentments towards parents because a certain child's getting all the attention. It is just it's destructive. Destructive, right? And I, I can't, you know, I sit here sometimes and try to empathize with aspects of a person's story. And as you were talking about your dad and your brother, you know, asking you the question, do you want help? And then they left. I don't, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. But you know what? I, I think that represents... That one little aspect of your story tells everything your dad had been through with you up to that point. Thank you for summarizing that. And that's an important point because they did. They 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 failed several times. They tried doing what everybody else does, which is patching holes and scrambling. Enabling. Enabling. But, but all of it. All the stuff we would do yep. as parents. So he had finally come to the point of understanding the situation for what it was and made peace with it. Yeah. And like you said, for our family – when we went through this, they healed. We all got healthy. I got healthy, but simultaneously they all got healthy. And in the last 14 and a half years, has our family faced serious trials? Yeah. There's been divorce. There's been heartache. There's been illness. There's been serious things that have caused traumatic events in different, you know, dynamics of our family. Every one of those situations has been approached differently. Why? Because of what they went through. Yeah. Because of the principles that my family learned about recovery that taught them how to be a better person while it also taught me how to be a better person. And how to support each other for how real. How to support each other. Yep. Showed you empathy, compassion, a lot of things that don't usually go hand in hand in addiction, in recovery. I mean, they, they, yep. they don't. I mean, it, they, there's so much uh, miseducation out there that why just stop? Well, when you're hurting as a person, just if you step back and look at sort of a general human principle – when you're hurting, your first reaction, both physically and emotionally, is to protect yourself, right? If you're in pain in some way. And so now think about all the people in pain in your family system if you are the addict and all the people that are hurting. So what do people do? Well, they're going to they, – they'll, they'll reach out and try to help you, but they also are going to try to protect themselves. And that creates you know differences of opinions, resentments, arguing, fighting – uh, and, and sort of tears people apart as everybody tries to protect themselves until you make that mindset shift and you realize this is a family system. The whole system needs attention. And we, instead of dealing with it one person at a time, if we can all come together and that requires help and there's a lot of great professional people and organizations out there to help us. But as soon as you make that shift to this is a family disease, then things can start to get better. It's where the miracles happen. Yeah. And that's when you not only transform a person's life, but an entire group And I of love people. what you said that uh, this is, this is a, just a beautiful example of 
uh, when you learn something, it doesn't go away. And your family learned this is how we're going to deal with tragedy going yeah. forward. And so as different tragedies came up and stressors in your family, you guys now had the skill set that came from everybody coming together through your recovery process and it strengthened the family. So these, you know, those same principles and skills as a family unit can be used for anything that comes your way. Yeah. And I've always been open about my story because it allows me to recover. It allows me to always be accountable to remember what happened to me and what I was able to overcome that that experience won't become a distant memory that will somehow come back to haunt me one day, which haunts far too many hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, I got, I, I got control of this now. Oh yeah. yeah. I just do this one time. Oh yeah. I've always been open about my story. And since day one, whether I shared it in church, whether I shared it at work, whether I shared it in any social group, I had people gravitating towards me afterwards. Oh my gosh, my sister, my mom, my wife, whatever it is that is going through this, please, what what did you do? Like, what are we supposed to do? This is tearing my parents apart or, you know, our whole family's just falling apart. What do you, what do you do? And I saw that there was this need for families to just have a better understanding of how they could help, right? They all want to help. They all desire to help. They do just about anything, but they're so discombobulated. And so is that why you started living proof? It was. And, and, and I'm thankful you said that. I'm grateful here to be today to talk about it. I, I took an approach a few years back. I went and got licensed and certified as an interventionist. Um, I realized it's good daytime drama television. It's actually one of the longest standing drama TV shows on television. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. No, I used to watch yeah. it yeah. thinking I was doing homework. Yeah. Like I, if they come up with me, I'll say this. Yeah. And it's this, if the camera starts following me around, then I know there's an intervention coming. It's this heroic <laughs> attempt, right? We set yeah. the stage and we get someone help. And it is important. That is an, an important aspect of it. My goal, and I started Living Proof Recovery Services, um, was to help educate families on the entire picture, exactly what they need to look at. Because there is a heroic attempt to get them in. There's going to be some defining moment where we can hopefully get them help, if you're lucky. What does that look like? Where are you supposed to go? What are we supposed to do while they're there? What are we supposed to do when they come home? A playbook. A playbook. So... I like families to see the entire thing before going into it to know how difficult this is going to be. There is no fix. I'm a firm believer when it comes to recovery, those who recover are those who heal. There is no place. There's no remedy. There's no oil. There's no procedure. There's not one thing that is going to make you fixed. You need support, layers of support to help you heal. Over time, all those layers are going to help a person become healthy. And that's the difference between recovering or just staying clean. Right. We talk about that a lot, that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. connection. Yeah, yeah we, that's on my website. That's one of our big mantras. The opposite is, because people ask that all the time. It's like, yeah, day and night, the opposite of addiction is connection. We, we know a lot of people uh, who've got sober and their idea of sober is just not using. Yeah. Avoidance. A, avoidance. Yeah. You know what I mean? In the, the old it, days, they call that a dry drunk. A right? dry drunk. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's like, but you haven't went back and fixed any of your, not, I, I don't want to use fix, but healed any of your, your, your issues. For sure. You, you haven't dived that, into them. That, that dovetails right back to what you were saying at the beginning, Danny, which is like your own experience, that that's what you have to dive into. You can't minimize or invalidate your experience as a human being growing up. And just say, well, I, I live, you know, I grew up in a nice 
neighborhood in South Salt Lake with a lot of privileges. And so I, I shouldn't realize and, and deal with any of the things that are underneath my skin because those are the things that have to heal. Life is hard and your parents do the best they can, but nobody gets through this life without, you know, skin in their knee and doing a few things. And by the time you get into your midlife, which is a natural psychological time of reflection. The people who blow it, we call that a midlife crisis. You get a Corvette and a girlfriend that's 20 <laughs> yeah. and all that. But um, everybody reflects on their life at midlife because you're like, well, I'm not a kid anymore, done all the big things, but I still have a lot of life left. Do I like the direction I'm going in? And that's a time where you, if you can kind of dig deep and realize – what about me needs to improve? What what can that's it, it can be the most exciting dynamic time of life. Midlife doesn't have to be a crisis. Uh, it can be an awakening. exciting awakening. Yes, very good words. So um, I appreciate that you you bring that up because when you've struggled with addiction, most likely there's been some aspect that it's an analgesic in your life. You're yep. just trying to numb out some problem, something, and uh, it eventually bites you. Yep. Yeah. And I, I mentioned earlier, and I'm so grateful you said that because people always ask me, what was it? What was it? Like, what was the thing that like pushed you down that road of addiction? I didn't understand the beginning, but you just mentioned on it, which was something that took me years to figure out. And that was, I just felt uncomfortable as a young, a younger boy trying to measure up to be what society told me I had to be. I had a father who came from Carbon County, nothing, coal mining town and became very successful. Now the bar set, right? And then it's just pressure of where I lived and people I saw like, wow, you got to be like this and you got to have this and you got to make this. And I'm like, wow, how am I going to do that? And I think a lot of young men have that pressure. Women have different pressures or the same. And when I look back, that pill I took, it didn't, it wasn't there, but the physical pain was not the problem. Right. I remember when you said about that pill. And and it still sticks with me as you said, it made me feel how I'd want to feel if I was in control of my feelings. Yeah, <laughs> it was. You know what I mean? Yep. And now you know you are in control of your feelings. Yep. But back then when we were young and we didn't have the emotional vocabulary, we didn't talk about our feelings. No, we didn't. No, it was like, we're not supposed nope. to have feelings. We're not Shut supposed to talk about up. it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just be tough. Yep. And I, I can truly say today... And, you know, I, I summarized my story real quickly and there were lots of events and horrific things that happened. But what I went through ended up giving me the greatest gift today at 44 years of age, being a father of three beautiful children and a wife is being the most comfortable in my skin. So comfortable. I don't think without going through that addiction, I would have ever got to that point of understanding who I am, seeing myself for who I am, loving myself, being in tune with myself. I had to go through something. Unfortunately, mine was a very difficult thing. And what I've come to know is it's far too common for too many people. Yeah. And it's everywhere. And my goal with Living Proof is to help more families have success, right? There's so many dynamics to recovery. You know, there's there's the whole homeless shelter side. There's incarceration side. There's, you know, rehabilitation we are in a, an incredible state where resources are abundant. There's family-oriented, God-fearing people where there's facilities galore to get you help. Well, we're one of the worst states in the country to get help. Less than 10% of people with known addictions in our state ever get help. That's it, insane. It's insane. They're known about. The resources are 
Tremendous. Tremendous. So I just want families to have more success to understand, okay, your daughter, your husband, okay, let's stop talking about their life, obviously, is a wreck, okay? The spotlight is bright the fact on that them. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> let's get over that and let's talk about you guys because I need you to understand that their only chance, you know, the CDC just came out with that new statistic. Did you see it? Mm-mm. After two and a half years, they just finally... Um, renewed or updated their statistics on recovery, and it's now 7% if you go look it up. Wow. 7% of people recover from addiction. Really? And it's my passion and my belief that it's because they don't have the proper structure. I know you can... You can testify to this is that your journey back required a lot of help, Mm -hmm. support from other people, whether that be financial, emotional, anything, right? All of it. Families are stuck everywhere with a loved one who's struggling because they're either fearful of something. A lot of people hope for this magical day when this is just going to disappear. There's stigma behind it. They stay stuck in these holding patterns. And again, this addiction's progressive. So meanwhile, this person's getting sicker. The family's getting sicker. The problems are getting bigger. Then all of a sudden there's criminal aspects involved in, in financial ruin. Families just need to figure out what it is they can do to help change the outcome. And that's my whole goal. As I said, there's no guarantee in this. The numbers suck. Like, it's pretty dismal. But if your loved one has a chance, it will be because you guys understood how to rally around together, unite, and provide them with an opportunity. Are they going to take it? We don't know. And sometimes the best way to help is by not helping. I mean, if that makes sense. It is. is. You know, we've been enabling. We've been doing this. And we're doing it under the guise that this is helping. But we don't know enough about this. Well, every family's biggest fear is... Like you mentioned with my dad, could I do that? Could could you walk away yeah. knowing that they're going to die? He only was able to do that because he had learned everything he could do to help, right? Mm-hmm. He'd made that available. He had it ready mm-hmm. and it was offered. And I also think strongly if there's any parents out there listening or any spouses who are dealing with this now, if you're able to really articulate a plan to help them, if you lose them, which is a very high probability, whether lose them emotionally or you actually lose them to death, knowing that you did everything you could to help them will give you peace other than maybe burying your head in the sand or avoiding the problem. I like... uh, In a lot of different aspects of mental health, I think the family systems approach provides the best outcomes and certainly we know that's true in addiction and what I really like about it is if you unfortunately do lose the addict but the family has rallied together the family has learned how to be unified how to support each other the family still is stronger still benefits and there are other members of that family that may not have addictions today but will have problems tomorrow and that family is is a healthier stronger family for everybody involved we love it when the addict also recovers and becomes part of that healthy family system, but it's not a waste of time. In fact, it's the best thing you can do for your family is to learn how to come together in times of crisis. Amen. Amen. Wow, this has been a great episode. Uh, Dr. Matt, any last thoughts? I guess the only the only other thought that's kind of on my mind real quick is, but what about prevention? So... I love the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if you're out there listening right now and you're saying, maybe we don't have somebody that we in our family that needs an intervention right at this moment, but what can we do? 
I would say right now is the time to bring your family together, communicate, talk about what's going on in your family, talk about your your mental health issues, talk about your substance abuse. Do you ever pull your young adult children aside and say, hey, tell me about what's going on in your life? Are you struggling with any anxieties? Are you struggling? How often do you drink or do you smoke weed? Like, are, do you guys talk about that? I don't care if you're a religious family or not. It happens in every family. Yep. And I think you, man, I, I'll tell you what, I love treatment, but you know what I love more is prevention. Well, I would love to piggyback on that because it's a very important point I wish I would have brought up earlier. I sat in an opioid epidemic um, um, symposium. Warren Hatch put it on, and I was lucky enough to know Larry Olson and be a fly on the wall. And someone stood up in that room who's known by, known by everyone in this state in the recovery world, and he said, you know what? You know what all these treatment centers are? We are buildings on fire. We're burning buildings. And people are jumping out, and he started crying. He's like, if we are able to catch a couple, then you know, then we're doing a good job. And he said, the only way we're going to ever make an impact on this true epidemic of addiction that's just destroying our communities is prevention. And it is. And I help families all the time understand simple steps in the beginning. In our our house, we have it called the safe place. It's a couch in our bedroom where our kids can come talk to us about anything. There's no judgment. If you aren't like willing it. to have those conversations with your children, a safe place where they can talk, they're going to find the information out. Somebody gonna, else will. They're going to get it quick. They'll get support right? from someone. And it's not going to be what you would prefer. So families who harbor secrets, stay sick. Families who create safe places for people to work through things because things are going to happen. And let's address it now instead of burying our head in the sand and hoping that this weird, awkward thing that you don't want to talk about is going to disappear. Be proactive right in the beginning. Nip it in the butt. Have a place where they can talk to you, tell you difficult things, and don't shame them. Right. Celebrate the fact they just told you and figure out a way to move forward. Yeah, beautiful. And every time I've talked to a parent who's taken that approach, they it's been a life changer for them and their family. Every and they time. need it. They need it. Man, I love this podcast. Good day. This is a good day. Even if I wasn't on it, I would listen. <laughs> I would too. I would. I would. And we're glad that you joined us today to listen to Danny Deaton's story. Don't forget, he's with Living Proof and Good Time Golf. That's right. Uh, we'll have more of those uh, links below this uh, post. So thank you for stopping by today. Project Recovery is a KSL podcast and it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. 
More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.